It's great to be back this morning to share God's Word with you. If you open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5 will be in verses uh, 13 through 15. Uh, This morning we're going to pick up where we left off uh, last week. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 1077, 1077. That's where we'll be this morning. We also encourage you to take that Bible home with you. Uh, We believe God's Word is so central in the life of every believer. We also believe it is God's Word that uh, gives us understanding of who we are and why we need Him in the first place. So we would encourage you to take that Bible home with you, uh, study, read. Uh, We encourage you to bring it back with you if you choose to worship with us in the future. Uh, But we are so thankful to uh, just come to a time where we just spend time in God's Word uh, together. But before we do that, I do want to make a couple uh, ministry slash mission announcements. Uh, Over the last month, I hope you've been paying attention to what God is doing in and through His people Uh, We had Aaron and Alicia come and join with us, uh, and we were able to hear about what God is doing in them and through them in South Asia. Uh, And then we also uh, were able to announce a new partnership with a local ministry here in Charleston, South Carolina, specifically Johns Island, uh, the Still Worthy ministry that helps uh, engage those who are walking with and walking through uh, addiction and substance abuse. And then we also got to hear from Boris from Ecuador about the Dunamis Foundation that is geared towards rescuing uh, girls, specifically young girls from the ages of 7 through 17 through human or slash sex trafficking. And so uh, God is doing amazing things here locally and globally. I hope you see that. And through God's faithfulness to us and our uh, response and faithfulness to him, guess what? Charleston Baptist Church is going to be able to send love gifts to these different ministries of over $60,000 in the near and the next uh, couple weeks to a month uh, to help support those ministries and what God is doing. And so when we think about what's happening in Ecuador, the Dunamis Foundation, uh, there was a need of uh, finances to help uh, finish off a house, to help Uh, allow young girls and their babies to be able to reside there and get the healing uh, that they need through the gospel. Guess what? God's faithfulness to us and our response to that is able to finish the funding for that in order to get that on the road uh, by the end of the year. That's the goal that Boris has. So yes, praise the Lord. Also, uh, when we think about uh, the Still Worthy Ministry, uh, those resources are going to go to help uh, bring in a third home uh, that they're going to use for residents there. It's going to help provide uh, training to their leaders, counseling training to their leaders, uh, nourishment to their leaders, also to help provide uh, resources to help uh, pay for ongoing bills that they have there, ongoing uh, payments that need to go out every single month because it's it's an in-home residency where they feed those that are there. They spiritually nourish them. uh, They help provide uh, work in different places of service and purpose, right? And so uh, that, that is awesome. And then also uh, when we think about South Asia uh, with Aaron and Alicia, the resources are going to them as well. And our goal is that we don't just provide financial resources, but we begin to prepare the way and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts because in the very, very, very near future, obviously Still Worthy Ministries is already happening uh, where we're sending people there uh, on a regular basis. We hope to encourage that and increase that with life groups and individual teams that go there. But we want to do the same uh, in South Asia. Uh, where we send uh, short-term teams to go there to help support uh, the ministries that are happening there locally in India. And we also want to begin sending teams, either short-term teams or even long-term teams, to Ecuador uh, alongside the leadership of Boris and the Dunamis Foundation to help support the ministries that are happening locally there in Ecuador. So God is doing amazing things. The question is, are we going to allow God to continue to do amazing things in us and through us? And so we want to start now, begin now, praying continually and submitting to what God's will is for us. I believe there are young people today who are going to bypass their first semester in college and go on mission opportunities throughout the world. I believe there are quote-unquote retired people. I don't believe we ever retire until the Lord calls us home. But those who have retired in the eyes of uh, 
man's philosophy are going to regroup and say, I'm going to leverage the rest of my time and my resources to do what God has called me to do both locally and globally. And so that we're going to praise God in advance. And so I hope and pray that you're seeing it. I hope and pray that you're going to be a part of that. So with that said, let us turn our attention to God's word this morning uh, as we unpack verses 13 through 15. Uh, and uh, really, this is a uh, uh, and a, a continuation of what Pastor Jason uh, preached on last week as he looked at Galatians 5 verses 1 through 12 and he did an incredible job walking through that. Uh, and really the thrust of uh, this section of scripture from Galatians 5 uh, chapter 1 through or verse 1 through verse 15 is, is centralized on freedom. And really everything about uh, this particular book centers around the freedom that we have in Christ. And so we're going to pick up that theme in verse 13. We're going to read uh, verses 13 through 15. The scripture says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So there's four aspects in these verses that we want to look at when it pertains to uh, freedom in Christ. The first aspect is this, our call to freedom, our call to freedom. The, the idea of freedom as it pertains to Christianity, not the things of this world, but Christianity occurs over 20 times in the New Testament. At the very heart of Jesus is the cry for freedom. Jesus desires spiritual freedom for you and I today. Paul picks that up in verse 13, the first part. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. The very fact that you and I are called to freedom is a reminder to us that this is a work of God's amazing grace in us and through us. This isn't something that we deserve. This isn't something that we earn. It's not because we were born in a particular land. It's because we have been reborn through the Spirit of God and the grace of God. That is why we are free. It's something that we are reborn into. By grace through faith, we are saved. It means that we are freed from God's wrath. We are freed from condemnation. We are freed from the power of sin. We are freed from the penalty of sin. And one glorious day, we will be freed from the very presence of sin. Praise God. Praise God. We are called to freedom that is uncompromising, unrelenting, and unconquerable. For this, Christ died. For this, he rose. For this, he is coming again. So I hope we understand the freedom that we have in Christ. But we also need to understand that, that there, are, there are challenges with that freedom, right? There are obstacles or enemies against that freedom. And Jason unpacked one of those last week in Galatians 5.1, where the scripture says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not what? Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Paul understands something that you and I need to understand, that there are enemies or challenges against the very freedom that Christ has for us. And, and the one that Paul addresses in uh, uh, Galatians 5, verse 1 through uh, verse 12, is that of legalism, right? Legalism is the yoke of slavery that he's referring to in verse 1 of Galatians 5. Legalism says that Jesus didn't do enough for me, so I've got to add to it, right? It's that performance treadmill of I have to do more. I have to somehow earn, secure God's, not just approval in the past, but I have to do it today. It's an ongoing approval. And there is tremendous weight in that. And I, and I believe, according to the word of God, that, that Christians live that kind of life. That they somehow have to great, uh, carry the burden of being accepted before God based on what they do, not based on what Christ has already done. And think about the impact of performance-driven life. It's never good enough, is it? Not only are you reminding yourself that you're not good enough, but I'm pretty confident probably the person or people sitting right around you are reminding you of what? You're not good enough, right? And it just takes a little bit of that to impact every area of your life. That's why Paul said in Galatians 5 verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The leaven that he's referring to is legalism. That's what he's referring to. And it affects everything about you. 
It affects the way you think, the way you feel, the way you act, the way you speak, the pressure that you put on yourself, the pressure that you put on those around you. And notice where it comes from. Jesus, speaking of this in Matthew 16, 6, says this. Jesus said to them, talking to his disciples, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So we encompass this in religion, if you will. Religion in and of itself is not bad. Religion is bad when it doesn't point us to dependency on Jesus Christ. That's when it gets bad. So when you think about religion and the legalism that is breathed in that oftentimes, it comes from religious leaders, it comes from religious people, it comes from religious activities, right? And, and oftentimes, uh, many times, those things can be good. So think about spiritual disciplines for just a moment, or as uh, Pastor Jason has reminded me, grace habits. I think that's an important way to distinguish that. Think about reading your Bible. Would you say reading your Bible is a good thing? Absolutely. Would you think uh, coming to worship on Sunday morning, specifically as we worship on Sunday morning, that is a good thing? Absolutely. Uh, tithing, good thing. Serving, good thing. Connecting, serve thing, good thing. All those things are good, but have you noticed that in your Christian walk, if we're not careful, if we leverage those good things to be the most important thing on how I'm going to uh, show myself approved by God, that those good things become a burden. They become a weight. How many of you have forgotten to read your Bible or study your Bible throughout the week and you have a Bible study coming up and that thing that was supposed to bring you great joy and connect you with Jesus Christ has become a great burden because you've got to hurry up and crush through it so that you're prepared for that night, right? Anybody? I think we've missed it then. The purpose of doing anything when it comes to Christ is to connect first and foremost with him and resting in the very fact that everything I need in this life has already been completed in him. Therefore, I live in that. I don't have to perform so think about the way legalism attacks our freedom. Paul's plea is, don't, don't lose your freedom. Don't lose out on the freedom that you have in Christ because you're trying to perform day after day after day. So we have a call to freedom, but our freedom also uh, has boundaries. Our freedom in Christ has boundaries, and this is where Paul uh, goes secondly here. And he understands that not only do we have a challenge or an enemy of uh, freedom in Christ based on legalism, but there's another form of a challenge or an enemy when it comes to our freedom in Christ, and that is license. So it's not just uh, legalism. I have to do, uh, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that Christ's work for me is sufficient, so I have to add to it. But it's also saying that I don't believe Christ did enough to me, therefore I have to still live in the very uh, sinful desires that I once had prior to Christ in order to be truly satisfied. In other words, I don't believe God has truly done a work of grace in my life to change my desires, to change my love, to change my affections toward him. And so Paul begins to attack uh, the other enemy of license. He says in the second part of verse 13, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So think about the license to sin, this idea that I'm saved by grace, therefore I can live however I want, and I stand forgiven, right? Now, there is truth in that, but it's not the whole truth. The whole truth would say, yes, I am forgiven for past, present, future sins. Praise God for that. But I'm also saved so that I reflect the love of Christ in me and through me, right? Christ does an amazing work through his spirit to change, again, my affections, my desires, my outlook on life, my purpose on why I'm here. So this freedom that I have is not a license to sin. And Paul attacks that in Romans 6. We saw this before, but let's see it again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ, uh, Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? That means that we have a new identity in Christ. We were buried, therefore, we, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul goes on to say in verse 15 of Romans 6, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? What does he say? By no means. 
So it is true that we are not under law, but under grace, but that doesn't mean that there is no longer any law, right? The law, again, points us to Christ. The law reflects the very holiness of God. That has not changed. There is still an ethic of life. There's still a moral of life, and it comes from him. And where is it fulfilled? It is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we walk in that. And so when Paul says, do not give an opportunity don't allow your freedom to give an opportunity for the flesh. The idea of opportunity there talks about uh, a springboard. Don't use that as a springboard to indulge in the sinful desires of the flesh. And some people live that way. Some people say, well, I'm saved. It's all good. I'm going to do exactly what I want. Listen, that is not true at all. And the, the reality is every single one of us has fleshly desires. When we talk about flesh, we're not just talking, we're not talking about skin and bone, right? We're talking about the desires that we have, right? All of us have desires of the flesh. For some, those desires of the flesh push us to lust, uh, anger, hatred, gossip, envy, jealousy. All those things are because we have a sinful desire within us, right? We have remnants of sin. Yes, we are no longer under the power and penalty of sin, but guess what's still there? The very presence of sin is still around us and, in fact, in us. And so to that, uh, John says this in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that are in the world, the desires of the flesh, so those things that uh, we are not bringing under the lordship of the Holy Spirit, but we're, we're feeding the desires of the flesh instead of feeding on the Spirit himself. What's controlling us is not him, but us. And the desires of the eyes, in other, in other words, I see what I want, and guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it, right? And then you have the pride of life. That is, I'm going to be the center of my universe. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I am the center of that universe. And he says what? It is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this idea of the system of the world, this system of the world that wants to remove God out of everything, it's controlled by the evil one. And guess what? He, he competes for our love. He competes for our attention. He competes for our time. Always. And so the question is, who are we going to feed? Are we going to feed the spirit, or are we going to feed the flesh that is in us? And the reality is that when we begin to feed the flesh, we find that those things, though momentarily, quote-unquote, satisfactory, they're always temporal, right? They're always fleeting. They never fill that void that we think we need filled. And the reality is we, as Christians, again, 1 John is, is written to Christians. The reality is this, that, that we can choose to live life like we have no king, right? Now, where does that get us? Well, you go back to the book of Judges, and you'll see exactly where uh, it takes us if we believe we do not have a king. Judges 21 through 25, or verse 25 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. How does that work out in your own home? When you do what's right in your own eyes. What happens in the church when we live lives doing what is only right in our own eyes? And so we need to be reminded that our freedom has boundaries. If you love the things of the world, guess what? You're always going to push the love of God out, right? But on the flip side, when you continue to live and receive the love of God, what's going to push out? The love of this world. So our freedom in Christ has boundaries. Third, our freedom in Christ is expressed in love. Expressed in love. Not only are we freed from things, but we are freed for things, right? So that's important. So we're not just freed out of captivity to be freed out of captivity, but we're freed out of captivity in order to do what? In order for purpose, in order to enjoy something that God has for us, and that is to love others. Last part of verse 13, the scripture says, but through love, serve one another. I love how the Greek translates that. The Greek says it like this, let love make you serve one another. So it's love that motivates what? 
service. And I love the word love because it's the Greek word agape. It's the unconditional, unrelenting, uh, unending love of Christ. Uh, The word serve there actually means slave, which is quite interesting because remember, Paul has been spending so much time talking about the freedom in Christ that we have in him. But now he's talking about this idea of slavery. So what is he getting at? Why is this important for us? Where, where do we see, and whom do we see, love that is unending or unrelenting, unconquering, unselfish, sacrificial? Where do we see that? Who do we see that in? We see that in Jesus Christ. He is the servant, right? He, in other words, became a slave. He surrendered his rights to accomplish the will of the Father in order that you and I would benefit that, from that today. And we see a picture of that in Mark 10, 45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The context is amazing because you have James and John. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. How does Jesus respond? The servant. The servant is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. The one who humbles himself before the Lord. The one who is willing to suffer in life. And guess what? Sacrificial love for one another requires a sense of suffering, right? Because we are giving up our rights for the sake of someone else. And that's exactly what Jesus did. You go back to Philippians chapter 2 and you see that we have the mind of Christ, right? And we see the mind of Christ, how he gave himself up. He did not count his, uh, he did not grasp for the things that said, oh, I have to be greater than you. No, he already knew who he was. He knew he was the beloved son of God. There was no challenge there. But he surrendered his will to the will of the Father. And to that, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The point is this. We cannot love one another unless we receive the love of Christ in us. Again, it's not about us going to do. It's about us receiving first. That's why when we get to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul unpacks it like this in verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. That's a weighty calling, isn't it? Mimic God, imitate God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrificial sacrifice to God. So everything's anchored again back on the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, right? But notice that he doesn't say go and do first, right? He says be imitators of God based on what? Who you already are and who are we? We're beloved children of God. So the relationship is the key. When the relationship is where it's supposed to be, when that fellowship is where it's supposed to be, what's going to happen? We are going to show and share the very love of Christ. Our love for others is anchored first and foremost, not in our love for others, but Christ's love for us. He sacrificed, he gave, he initiated, he pursued, he, and he surrendered his rights to show his love for you. And one of the greatest acts of love and service to others that we can show is that of surrender. We don't want to give up our rights, do we? In fact, we hold so dear to physical rights and lose sight of the spiritual freedom that we have in Christ. And I love what Paul says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Serving others out of love frees us from our own self-centeredness. It humbles our pride. And what is Paul's desire? Paul's desire in life was to see others come to faith in Christ. And what was his strategy? His strategy was love, gospel love, grace and truth. But there's a great paradox in our freedom. It says that we are slaves. Again, doesn't make sense. How is it that we're free, but yet Christ has called us to be slaves? Slavery is freedom when our slavery is unto Christ. That's what the scripture is teaching us. First Peter says it like this in verse uh, 16 and 17 of chapter 2. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, 
but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So the context here is talking about uh, submitting to those who are in authority, right? Now, who, who has a problem with that? Submission isn't just about your behavioral actions. Submission, first and foremost, is the disposition of your heart, right? That's why the scripture says, fear God. Fear God means to honor the Lord, love him, surrender to him, depend on him, trust in him, be in all of him. And I can guarantee you, when we live lives in complete worship to the Lord, our submission, both in action and in attitude, will be Christ-honoring. Now, this doesn't say submit to those who are calling us to do things that are contrary to the word of God. However, it is telling us that we have to uh, learn to submit both in action and in attitude to those who have authority over us. Why? Because that is an expression of love. And why can we do that? How can we do that? We are freed in the gospel to be servants, right? We have been given everything we need because of the finished work of Christ. And why is this so important? Galatians 5.14, the scripture says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in Galatians 5 at the beginning, it was talking about uh, if you're going to uh, try to adhere to the law, do the law, then you need to keep it all, right? And we know that according to Galatians 3, that leads to curse, right? Because we can't do it. We're guilty. But here the scripture moves from this idea of doing the law to fulfilling the law. Now, this is important because Paul is quoting from Leviticus 19, verse 18, and he quotes the second greatest commandment, right? Love your neighbor, right? What is the first great commandment? Jesus puts those two together in Matthew 22. The question is asked, teacher, which is the greatest command, or the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, or to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So there's a connection between the greatest commandment and the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Think about the Ten Commandments for just a moment. If you look at the Ten Commandments, they're really split into two main categories. The first four deal with love, with, love for God, and uh, fifth through uh, ten uh, refer to love of neighbor. And what the Scripture is teaching us is that we cannot truly love our neighbor as ourself unless what? Unless there's love for God, Right? It's also telling us that there's really not true love for God if there's not what? True love for neighbor. And so there's a connection between love of God and love of neighbor. When we think about love, sometimes we put that in a separate category, right? Well, I'm, I'll try to love that person today. Anybody done that before? Have you realized that loving people is very difficult? What if we, instead of making love a category in life, one of many, what if love was the category? And it displayed itself in all the other areas of life. Trying to segment love for specific situations and for specific people is a burdensome task. But when love is your guide, love according to the gospel, not according to the world, right? The big craze in the 60s was real love. They got that way wrong. The love of the gospel, let that be your one category and let it see it work itself out throughout life. Why is, why is it so important that loving neighbor and loving God fulfills the law. How does that work? Well, James, the half-brother of Jesus, says it like this in James chapter 1. And I, and I believe James is a great uh, book to read in conjunction with Galatians because Galatians talks really about justification and, and it's through faith. James puts that faith in action, right? There's like over 180 commands in the book of James, so it's important. Uh, James uh, chapter 1, verse 25, the scripture says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of what? The law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
The law is perfect. Why? Because of the holiness of God. It shows us God's holiness. It's, the law is beautiful, right? Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill the law, right? It shows us our Father. Now, the question is, how are we blessed in serving others with gospel love? Are we, are we blessed because of what we do? The, the key is perseveres. That's the word in chapter, uh, verse 25 there in James. Perseveres. It means to anchor yourself in, to abide in, to cling to. Now, the question is, are we abiding and clinging to our acts of love for one another? Is that how we're persevering? If that's the case, we're in big trouble, right? No, we're anchoring ourselves into whose perfect love? Christ's perfect love. That's what we're anchoring ourselves into. We, we are blessed because we are clinging to his work, and based on his work, we are able to love those who are around us. The point is this. Our ability to serve others in love comes not from us, but from the one who has served and loved us greatly and continues to do so. We cannot love our neighbor without first receiving the love of God and loving him in return. When we look at uh, the first epistle of John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 21, the scripture says this, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, and this is the key word, must also love his brother. Now, if we read that wrong, there's burden, not freedom. The whole epistle of 1 John, the primary reason why that was written is to give assurance of salvation, Right? So how do we define the word must? Is our assurance in what we do? We must do it. No. The word must communicates this is the byproduct. In other words, you receive the love of God, you respond to God's love for, love for him, and you reflect that love to other people. So the must is this is the byproduct of this. This is what's going to happen. When you rest in the love of God and you reflect that love to him and respond to him in love, guess what? That is going to be a reflection of your love for others. So the must there is that this is what has to happen. This is what he does in your life and in my life. He loves me, I love him, therefore I love others. And the word neighbor is interesting because it doesn't just talk about church family. Neighbors, according to the scripture, talks about enemies. Those who are close to you, those in close proximity, those who you spend your time with. And again, relationships are impossible apart from the Lord. But why is expressing love to others so important? Uh, Jesus says this to his disciples in John 13. A uh, new commandment I give to you. Why is it new? Not because it didn't exist before, but it's new because the expression of love is new, right? He's getting ready to go to the cross. He says that you love one another just as I loved you. You are also to love one another. Verse 35, this is the key. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So our love for one another our love for our neighbor is an expression of Christ in us. It is the advertisement of the beauty of the gospel. And again, it's not because of our work for him. It's because of his work in and through us. And here's what we find. When we realize God is working in our life, expressing itself in servanthood, love to others, guess what? There's great joy there. That's why John says in 1 John 5, 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not what? They're not burdensome. They're an outflow of Christ's work in us. And I don't know about you, but when I see myself loving the unlovable, and I see people loving me who oftentimes is unlovable, there's joy there. Why? Because you know, you're convinced that it is the work of the Spirit in you, not the work of the flesh. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for the sake died and was raised. Listen, when we're living for ourselves, that's not freedom, that's bondage. But when we're living for others because of the love of Christ in us and through us, man, there's tremendous freedom there. Lastly, our freedom in Christ does not destroy others, 
does not destroy others. Paul closes this section with a warning in verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. When our freedom in Christ is being fed by the flesh and not by the spirit, it will always, always, always negatively impact you and negatively impact those around you. Now, we're going to spend more time with that beginning next week uh, for pretty much the remainder of Galatians. uh, But here's what we need to understand. Consider how our freedom in Christ under the work of the flesh brings destruction, not life. Notice the destructive sequence that Paul brings out. You bite, you devour, you consume. Think about the mental picture that comes to mind on how an an animal attacks his prey. The animal attacks his prey, ultimately dismantling it, right? And that's exactly what happens when we're feeding the flesh. We are slowly dismantling the community, right? The community that we have together. When we indulge in the desires of the flesh and not live by the Spirit of Christ who is in us through service, that's exactly what happens. In other words, self-indulgence is self-enslaving, and it is self-destroying. That's exactly what happens. It destroys you and those around you. And here's what we find in verse 15. We, we get a glimpse, we get a window into the hearts of those who were in Galatia at the time, and guess what? Verse 15 also gives us a glimpse and a window to many of our homes today. Is your home categorized today, at this moment, as biting, devouring, and consuming? Because you're feeding the flesh and not feeding the spirit One of the clearest pictures of why this happens is found in James chapter 4. James 4, beginning in verse 1, the scripture says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is that part of your home life today or your work life today? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Again, who is James writing to? He's writing to the church. He's writing to brothers and sisters in Christ. He's not talking about the world. He is talking about the church. And James says the conflict is where? It's not on the outside. Where is it at? It's on, it's on the inside. It comes from you. And where does it come from? It comes from what's ruling your heart, right? It's the passions inside of you. And so when you're feeding the flesh and not the spirit, what's going to happen? Those passions are going to show themselves. And he says that you, you don't ask. In other words, we don't pray. And when we do pray, we pray wrongly. Why is that? Because everything is focused on us, right? Again, we're feeding the flesh. And guess what? Your flesh has an appetite. Do you believe that? It has an amazing appetite. And so the scripture is reminding us that, that what gets in the way is pride. Now, feeding the flesh comes in many different forms, right? Now, we can talk about lust and all those different things, but what about control? Did you realize that trying to control a person or a situation is a desire of the flesh? Did you realize that? Do you realize as you grow more and more mature in your walk with the Lord that you realize you really don't have any control over anything? You have certain control. In other words, you you can be proactive in life and not reactive in life. But at the end of the day, you realize that you're not the authority that you thought you were. Only Christ is that authority. Only the Spirit is that authority. And so sometimes the work of the flesh isn't so much about what you're looking at on the computer. It has more to do with how you're dealing with the relationships in your life, what you're trying to control, what you're trying to make people do. And what happens when we uh, spend our life on these earthly passions, whatever those things are? We have unfaithful, divided affections. Verse 4, listen to the language James has. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, you can't have two masters, right? It's impossible. But one of the things I love about the gospel 
all throughout Scripture. It's not only does the Scripture teach us and show us our sin, but it also shows us our need for a Savior. I love the fact that the Scripture doesn't leave us here. Verse 5 says this, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now that's a difficult verse. Uh, verse 5 is probably one of the most difficult verses to interpret in, uh, in the Scripture, in New Testament specifically. Um, but what do we learn about the context here? I think the fact that God is jealous is very, very important. In other words, we need God to be jealous, right? The important part about the jealousy of God is this. God is not jealous about you, right? He's jealous for you. Why? Because he knows that the work of the Spirit in you is what's going to be your greatest blessing in this life. So he is jealous for you, for his own glory. God's jealousy is not built around you. It's built around him, his character, and his purposes. And in the midst of these words of you adulterous people, we see amazing grace. Verse 6, but, his, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God's grace leads us to repentance, right? And, and how is it that God gives more grace? What does that mean? It means that God's grace overcomes our selfish desires. It overcomes the desires of the flesh. It overcomes our inability to relinquish control, our bondage and captivity to sin. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God breaks every chain, right? We sing that song. In verse, five, the script, or verse 7, the scripture says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will what? He will flee from you. This doesn't say that Satan won't attack, right? Listen, Satan will relentlessly attack you, right? But what causes the devil to flee? Think about Jesus. Jesus resisted the devil through the gospel, the truth of the gospel. So stand firm in him. Use your freedom in Christ to love those around you. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep love Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So let's close with a couple questions real quick. What's holding you captive today? One of the ways that you can answer that question is what can't you say no to? Right? That thing that you're always going back to that's not honoring the Lord, that's not feeding the spirit, but it's feeding the flesh. And it doesn't matter if that captivity is coming from legalism or license. Legalism, I have to perform. License, I can do whatever I want. The root is the same. The root is unbelief in the gospel, right? So what's holding you captive today? Are you truly running free in Christ today? Free, loving one another, serving one another. Second question, how are you leveraging your freedom in Christ? How are you leveraging your freedom in Christ? When you think about your relationships today, are you leveraging those relationships for your own gain? Or are you leveraging those relationships so that they will grow deeper and deeper in who they are in Christ or that they will come to faith in Christ? Last question, will you choose to confess, repent, and have a renewed trust in the gospel? Listen, we're, the scripture is going to get really in our business for the rest of our time in Galatians. The question is, are you willing, when the spirit of God convicts you, are you willing to confess and repent and have a renewed trust in the gospel? Listen, there is great, great freedom when we're feeding the spirit. But there's also tremendous slavery and bondage when we're feeding the flesh. And the spirit will make that known to you. The question is, will you submit to him? So as we stand and sing our time of response.